Before I read this text this morning, I want to put it uh, into a bit of context. Uh, probably you, many of you don't remember anyway, but about six months ago, I preached a sermon on the first 11 verses of this chapter. And the good news for you is that because we're on streaming, I can't quiz you this morning to see how much of that you remember, as you should. Um, but I do want to highlight some of what we find in these opening verses concerning Joseph and his family. One thing that stands out is that Jacob's family, Jacob's, of course, Joseph's father, was exceedingly dysfunctional. And we'll continue to see that played out in spades as we go through our passage today. Jacob openly uh, and shamelessly showed a powerful prejudice for his two sons born to him by Rachel, that is Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin is quite a bit younger at this point, doesn't come into the story so much. Joseph was marked off as a, a special son by a fancy cloak of many cover, colors that his father bestowed on him. And in reality, the sons of Leah were given short shrift. Joseph, who is the central character of the story from Genesis 37 to 50, is in the early chapters a flawed character. I think it is fair to say he flaunted his standing with his father in front of his brothers. He reveled in the dreams uh, which showed his future dominion over his father and his brothers, he was a tattletale, informing on his brother's misdeeds. His brothers, well, they responded, as we see in verse 4, uh, in kind. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Literally, they could not greet him with the traditional shalom. All this, I think, sets the stage for the next installment of this family drama, which we find in verses 12 through 36, uh, which I will now read, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he, he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. 
they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they 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 drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they set the robe of many colors and brought it, they, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come to your word today, as we come to these events in the life of Jacob and his family, help us, Lord, to see your hand in all that happens. Help us, Lord, to be reminded of your grace and your goodness and your greatness. 
And Lord, grant us that we might rest in you and in the work your son did for us on the cross. We ask this in his name. Amen. I think it is hard sometimes uh, to put ourselves in the moment of this beginning portion of the Joseph story. We know it so well. Uh, We know how it eventually uh, turns out, how God accomplishes his purposes through the dysfunction of this family. But through these events that we find here in chapter 37, we have to realize that Joseph's life and his dreams seemingly are destroyed. And truth be told, Jacob's mind, excuse me, in Jacob's mind, his life is no longer worth living. And for the rest of the family, the guilt is going to become oppressing. But even though it seems as if Joseph's God-given dreams were shattered in pieces, we find that the Lord's was still in complete control of every aspect of his life. In fact, the Lord was still at work in and through the shattering experiences of suffering and terrible abuse at the hands of his own brothers. These turn out to be the means by which the Lord accomplished his own good purposes for Joseph, for the entire family, and ultimately for the whole world. As this section opens, we find uh, Jacob sending Joseph off to Shechem to find Joseph's brothers in order to see how the brothers are making out with the herds they are tending. Sort of to keep track of them. Jacob sending here and Joseph styling going, I think again highlights the dysfunction of the family. One must wonder if Jacob had any sense of the tensions that were roiling in his family. Or if he did have any sense of it, did he care? Joseph was the tattler, and yet now he sends him off to check up on the brothers. Interestingly enough, the word translated in verse 14 as well is again the word shalom. Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. Go and see if there is peace with your brothers. I'm just not sure that Joseph is the one who should go and see. What exactly was Jacob thinking? How would he imagine Joseph's brothers would greet him? miles away from his home, especially when he arrived wearing his infamous coat. Just a geographical note here, 
Jacob's home was in the Hebron Valley, about 50 miles away from Shechem. And Dothan was another 15 miles north of Shechem. This was to be no out and back in one day trip. <clears throat> Joseph obeys his father and sets off for Shechem in his multicolored robe to find his brothers. And when Joseph gets to Shechem, there are no brothers, there are no flocks being tended. I suspect that could e he could easily have given up and going, gone home, and maybe he was about to do that. But at the critical moment, this man appears, who seeing Joseph asks, what are you looking for? And in verse 16, Joseph responds, I am seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing, where they are pasturing the flock. He tells Joseph that they have gone off to Dothan. Armed with this information, Joseph went on to Dothan, where he found his brothers. Or more precisely, they saw him coming in the distance, wearing his fancy robe. And their response was to plan to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. At this point, his oldest brother, Reuben, intervenes. He suggested to his brothers that rather than kill him, they should just throw him into a cistern. Apparently, his plan was to return later and to rescue Joseph. The brothers agree. They strip Joseph of his clothes, his precious robe, and they throw him into the pit. And we find them sitting down to eat lunch. And while they're eating lunch, <clears throat> along comes this caravan of Midian merchants uh, traveling down the road headed for Egypt. And in verse 26, we find that the Judah, another brother, has a better idea, a better idea of what to do with Joseph. <clears throat> Instead of spilling our brother's life, he says, let's just sell him to these traders. That way we won't be, guil guil <clears throat> we won't be guilty of killing our brother. Plus, we'll make some money on the side. He says he is our brother after all. And for all practical purposes, he still will be dead to us, but without any of the messiness of killing him ourselves. Now, just note that Reuben was not present at this time. And so the brothers agreed with Judah, and they sold Joseph to the Midianites for 20 shekels of silver. Legally, of course, the difference between selling a person into slavery and outright murder was a distinction without difference. In the ancient Near East, selling someone into slavery was a capital punishment, considered in that way no different than murder. Of course, now the brothers were stuck with a problem. How would they tell Jacob? What would their story be? 
They took Joseph's many-colored garment. They stripped from him. They stained it with a goat's blood. And they allowed Jacob to draw his own conclusions. It's interesting. Notice that they didn't actually lie to their father. They just produced the blood-stained robe and said, uh, do, you know, do you recognize this? Uh, is this your son's robe? I think there's a rich irony <clears throat> that we find here. As Jacob is being deceived by a garment and a dead goat, since those were what he used to deceive his own father, Isaac, many years before in order to steal Esau's birthright. Jacob tears his garments. He mourned his son, refusing to be comforted by his sons and daughters. Jacob's reactions highlight the problem behind the whole chapter. For Jacob, his other children don't count for much. It is as if Joseph is his only son, so that with his death, Jacob's life is over. It's not just that Joseph's dreams have been shattered by the events, but Jacob's dreams were destroyed as well. Why was Jacob so completely overturned? Of course, the answer lies in his favoritism of Joseph, the son which is described for us in verse 3 of the chapter as the son of his old age. Uh, This is, interestingly enough, the same phrase used to describe Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 21. Isaac, the son of Abraham's old age, was the son through whom God would fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. And I think what we find here is that in some way, Jacob saw Joseph as the child through whom the Lord's covenant promises would continue to be fulfilled. He was the son, like Abraham, of Jacob's old age. So now with Jacob, excuse me, with Joseph's apparent death, how would that promise be fulfilled? The dream that Jacob had stored up in his heart, because back in verse 11, when he hears this dream of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down uh, before his son, he, we are told that he kept it in his heart. As much as it irritated him, it intrigued him. And that is why Joseph's death was not merely one of life's great storms for Jacob. It was a storm that he could not weather. But notice how the chapter comes to a close. Moses, our narrator, strikingly juxtaposes Jacob's intense grief with the announcement of Joseph's safe arrival in Egypt and sail to Potiphar. In fact, Joseph was not, had not yet passed from the annals of history. He was not in Sheol, in the grave. 
I think there are several lessons that we need to learn <clears throat> from these events concerning Jacob, Joseph, and the family. The first and most obvious point is that we need to learn from this is, is God's sovereign control over all our circumstances. What we call God's providence. This lesson is repeatedly seen throughout the, the account of Joseph from chapters 37 through 50. It seems to be repeated over and over and over again. And I think there's good reason for this, because we need to hear it repeatedly. God's sovereignty is at work in complex and profound ways throughout this story, just as it is in our own lives. Think about it for a minute. Think about all the, the coincidences that were necessary to get Joseph down to Egypt. To begin with, Jacob needed to send Joseph out to check on his brothers. Then Joseph had to meet the unnamed man who told him his brothers had gone to Dothan. Now, if the brothers had stayed in Shechem, Joseph would have found them with no problem. But they would not have been on the main camel route to Egypt. What's more, even though Dothan was on the main route, it could have been days or, or weeks before a caravan showed up heading in the right direction. Would Joseph survive those days in the pit? Or would Reuben have come and rescued him in the meantime and returned him to Jacob? Also, the caravan had to be headed to Egypt and not some other destination. And Joseph had to be sold to Potiphar's house so the next part of God's plan could be set in motion. But finally, Jacob had to be successfully deceived by the ruse with the many-colored coat. Otherwise, the family would have been ripped apart beyond repair. All of these things needed to happen in just the right order at the right time to get Joseph down to where he needed to be so that he could eventually and ultimately save the entire family from, fa from famine. Coincidence? I don't think so. At the same time, notice how confusing and painful many of these circumstances must have been for those going through them. God was in sovereign control of everything, yet the sovereign control involves destroying the peace and happiness of both Jacob and Joseph. God's sovereign plan left Joseph stripped and naked and sold into slavery. His sovereign plan for the good of his family left Jacob inconsolable in a state of sorrow and dark emptiness that would mark his life for the next 20 years or so. Jacob and Joseph's dreams were completely shattered and broken. 
You know something? There was no voice from heaven telling them, hang in there, guys. Something good would come from it. They were left with nothing to fall back on other than their faith in God and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. At times, that certainly must have seemed like a slender hope indeed. No doubt there were plenty of times when their hope and their faith gave way to doubt and despair. Not even the most skilled counselors could have explained what on earth God was doing. It would take many years and innumerable twists and turns in the story before the necessity of the events could become clear. Yet at the end, faith and hope are vindicated, while doubt and despair are driven away. God's sovereign providence does at times take us into and through storms that crush our hopes and dreams. He does not promise us an easy life of health and wealth, yet it is precisely God's loving providence that is at work in these difficult times. God is not capricious and mean, bringing painful situations into our lives with no reason. He has profound lessons for us to learn and ways he will use us to glorify him, which cannot be accomplished unless we pass through deep waters. Joseph cannot save his people sitting comfortably at home. Jacob's idolatrous love for Joseph needs to be challenged. And for that, Joseph has to be taken away. God loves Jacob too much to let him comfortably hold on to his idolatry. If we are in Christ, so too our pain is never meaningless. God always has good purposes to accomplish through it, both in us and through us. I think many of us are are able to affirm God's sovereignty over random circumstances like storms and natural disasters, and even things like pandemics. But one of the things we learn from the account of Joseph is God's sovereignty over willful sin. And I think it is in things like a person's willful sin that we at times may wrestle, even balk against God's sovereignty. Isn't human evil just the result of human free will? But consider Joseph's brother's evil actions. No, notice how necessary uh, God's ordering of the circumstances was for the brothers to act out their sinful impulses. As long as Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph remained at home, the brothers couldn't do anything about their hatred for him. Their hatred in their hearts remained in seed form. And in order for it to turn into attempted murder, there also needed to be opportunity, which the events in this passage 
provide. If God had caused Jacob to think think through this situation and to reflect on the relationship between Joseph and his brothers and to keep Joseph home, his brothers never would have had the opportunity to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. The thoughts of their hearts might, might never have been fully revealed, even to themselves. Once God providentially provided the opportunity, the sins of their hearts emerged into the clear light of day. If we are honest with ourselves, we can see that we too often fall in that same way. We have many sinful thoughts in our hearts upon which we never act simply because we do not have the opportunity to do so. Our hearts may be restrained from outward sin by the, the presence of other people, but by fear of being caught, by social taboos, and so on. That is the grace of God to us and to others. If we lived in a world where we act on every sinful idea in our hearts, we would truly be living in hell. For that reason, the Lord graciously restrains our hearts from outward sin in many different areas of our lives. At other times, for his own reasons, the Lord removes those restraints and puts us into a situation where we have the motive and the opportunity to go ahead and sin. And our hearts are allowed to do what they want. The Lord sometimes chooses to show us the sad truth about ourselves, precisely allowing us to live out the sin that resides within us. Only in this way will we truly understand our need for the gospel. And so there, <clears throat> there is good news in this passage for us. Joseph's brothers planned to murder him and then settled on for se- uh, selling him into slavery. The truth is they were not utter pagans living their lives as strangers to God. They were the foundation of the people of God, the 12 patriarchs who would form the base on which God would build his holy people. They are our ancestors as well, and we are no better than they. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God daily. And if we do not commit the same type of grievous sin as Joseph's brothers, it is because God has providentially kept us from committing them. It is not just terrorists and murderers who have broken God's law and deserve to face the consequences. We have all done the same thing and follow the same patterns of death each and every day. Yet the amazing part of the story that God is writing throughout history is that we, like Joseph's brothers, can be included in the holy people God is calling to himself, the new Israel of God. 
how is it possible for a holy God? The, the, the writer, the prophet Habakkuk tells us that his eyes are too pure to look on evil. How can that God, whose eyes are too good, too pure to look on evil, sovereignly use our sin for his glory and for our good? The answer to that is the gospel. And we see in this chapter striking ways in which the gospel is prefigured. God the Father sent his own beloved son into this world to live among the descendants of Joseph's brothers, to seek their peace, their good, their shalom. Neither the Father nor the Son were surprised by the cross. Unlike Jacob, this father knowing did so knowing exactly how it would turn out. And though the father restrained Joseph's brothers from killing him, he did not restrain the sin of those who hated Jesus. He surrendered his precious son to men who stripped him not of a royal robe, but of a simple peasant's garment, and then brutally beat him and executed him. Commentators have pointed out Joseph's surprising silence as he met his brothers. Earlier in the chapter, we find Joseph, somewhat the precocious son, the entitled son, full of words. He brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. He shares his dreams of supremacy, not once but twice. He replies joyfully, now I don't know if it was joyfully, but he says, here I am when his father asks him to go to his brothers. He explains the mission he is on to a random man he meets in the field in Shechem. But at the crucial point, when his brother sees him, this man of many words falls silent. And I think in this way he resembles Jesus. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, like a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, speaking of Jesus. The voice that could have commanded legions of angels to come and restrain those venting their anger against him, remained silent. And so Jesus exercised his authority over his own death. They had no power to commit such sin against him, except the power he permitted them. And so the Apostle Peter proclaims in that sermon on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But the father's response to his son's death was different than Jacob's response. Jacob believed that his eyes told him the whole story. Joseph was dead, and therefore so were his dreams. God's plan to redeem humanity was over, destroyed by a freak accident. The forces of darkness and chaos had won. 
but our Heavenly Father knew better. He knew that his son's death was not the evidence of God's purpose having been having failed. Instead, it was the proof that divine love had triumphed. The blood-stained blood cross that told the story of Christ's death would be the gateway to new life for millions upon millions of sinful men and women who by it would re be redeemed and given hope. The gift of forgiveness comes freely to us when we simply trust in what Jesus has done for us. Instead of trying to stand up at our own righteousness, justified by our own best efforts to do what is good and right, we put on the robe of Jesus and ask God to recognize his son's robe as our only claim of righteousness. When we do that, in place of our record of murderous anger, faithlessness, lust, covetousness, laziness, and the list could go on, God gives us the perfect record of Jesus. This reality reshapes the way that you and I are to think about the terrible storms that invade our lives. Whether the storms come from circumstances such as natural disasters or pandemics or from the painful sins of others against us or the awful sins we commit against others, how could the God who acts sovereignly in all circumstances and is sovereign over the worst sinful of human acts not be at work for our good in the storms of your life and my life. God will use these trials. He will use our sins and the sins of others to show us more about our hearts more about our need for him, more about our desperate need for the gospel, more about the brokenness of the fallen world in which we live. He will use these trials to refine and sanctify us and to teach us to focus more on the true treasure we must seek, which is in him and in him alone. I pray that God would grant us such grace that we would rest on him and we would seek him and that we would treasure him above all else. To him be all glory. Let us pray.